Episode 5 of the Water Break Podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. This episode, we're going to discuss lagoon aeration with a guest, Patrick Hill, who has been a lagoon specialist for Triple Point Environmental since 2007. Triple Point Environmental is a company dedicated to providing cutting-edge, cost-effective solutions for wastewater lagoons across North America. Patrick is a graduate of Notre Dame and has presented on lagoon topics at conferences throughout the U.S. and at WEFTEC. He was named one of Water and Waste Digest Young Water Professionals to watch in 2015. And you'll also want to stay tuned for our Wanda's Water Tidbit at the end of our program, where we share fun and quirky trivia or cool information we find on water. So, Patrick, let's let's talk lagoons. Let's talk first about the differences between the anaerobic, facultative, anaerobic lagoons. Yeah, so there's three different types of lagoons, as you had discussed. The anaerobic would be, kind of as the name suggests, no air, no oxygen, trying to operate within an anaerobic condition. You find these typically more in industries, you know, slaughter kill operations, for example, are, are quite have quite a few anaerobic lagoons, and they'll actually collect the gas that comes off of them and burn it mm-hmm. in turbines. To generate electricity, which is kind of cool. Facultative lagoons are really a combination of three different types of process in one. They have anaerobic portions on the bottom, they have anoxic portions in the middle, and then at the top where they're getting air water contact, they have aerobic zones. So it's kind of a cool process. And, and typically they're about five feet deep and they tend to be really, really big. My favorite thing about facultative lagoons is that they are the lowest maintenance lagoon that there is. And there's really nothing you have to do. The water just sits there for 90 days or so, and it comes out and it's relative. Yeah. Um, and, and then the final type is an aerated lagoon. And as the name suggests, that's where you're actually using mechanical aeration of some kind, either diffused aeration, which is on the bottom, or surface aeration, which is floating on the top. And with that type of air um, lagoon, you typically get the fastest treatment of all three. And depending mm-hmm. on how much air mixing you have, it could be partial mix, complete mix, or vigorous mix uh, is a is a metric we use. So, yeah. You know, I actually had a guy one time tell me that he aerated his lagoons by riding his uh, boat, you know, using his boat motor through the lagoon once a day. I was like, yeah, well, that was different. That does, <laughs> that, that does help. I've heard of people that will like create almost these devices that have chains on them. And just troll, have the trains on the bottom and just troll their lagoon, basically. And mm-hmm. what it does is it helps to disrupt the uh, sludge on the bottom. And just by having that disruption, you get a reduction in sludge. So uh, there's people that do that. Most lagoon operators, you know, they're wearing a lot of hats in town. They don't have time to do that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's all doable. Well, I, I love this quote from your page where you say lagoons do it better. But can you explain why? Well, I think, you know, we we kind of came up with that concept because we ran into a lot of engineers and, and the sort of prevailing wisdom, which was that lagoons can't do it, you know, that they need to be replaced, that lagoons smell, they're, they're too big, and so on and so forth. And we kind of disagree, ultimately. Lagoons are the lowest maintenance, easiest to operate, lowest capital cost system for treating wastewater that's out there. And so if a lagoon's properly maintained and, and, and proper has the right equipment in place, it can meet any nutrient limit and BOD limit that it needs to meet. And it can do so at a fraction of the cost. And so for a lot of the communities that have lagoons, they're the perfect system for them. They're 
mm-hmm. usually small communities, 5,000 people or less, they don't have the resources to operate a mechanical plant. And heard horror stories about small communities that like that who have put in mechanical plants and just regretted it because it costs twice as much than upgrading the lagoon or, or you know or maintaining the lagoon. It, it it takes twice, three times as much energy. And mm-hmm. ultimately the operators didn't know how to operate the plant. So actually the effluent got worse, ironically enough. So yeah. yeah. No, I mean it, if done properly, lagoons they do do it better. I love that. I, as my kids say, you know, I love me something. I love me some lagoons. Lagoons are great. <laughs> okay. So because we're talking about lagoon aeration, uh, what does increased dissolved oxygen do for a system? Dissolved oxygen is, is on a fundamental level what the microbes that the aerobic microbes are consuming as part of breaking down the BOD constituents and, and potentially nitrification as well. So if you have more oxygen in the lagoon, uh, it can help to grow more of those bugs and to naturally foster those that that growth and, and treat faster, basically. But what's also important is not just to have the oxygen, it's also to have the mixing. Mixing is what gets the oxygen, the bugs, and the food together. If you don't have mixing, you can pump uh, pure oxygen into a lagoon and it will go to, to total waste. I had a, a customer of mine who told me the story about how they experimented with a system that basically pumps water out of the lagoon saturates the water with oxygen in a pressure vessel and then pumps it back in the lagoon. And they they wanted to test this. They did sort of like a trial. And they found that they were able to get their dissolved oxygen levels in the lagoon from, you know, zero to 10 or 12 to saturation. So lots of oxygen in this lagoon. And their hope was that, hey, you know, we get all this oxygen here, we'll grow all these nitrifiers and we'll break down our BOD and we'll get nitrification. Well, they didn't touch the, uh, the, the ammonia at all. Uh, with nitrification, it just remained exactly the same. And I thought it was a really interesting and good anecdote around, you have to have mixing. And if you don't have mixing, uh, it doesn't matter how much oxygen you put in the lagoon, it's not going to get the job done. How does that also help with like the reduction of the notorious turnover that you know people see two to three times a year? Right, right. And again, this is comes back to mixing. So what happens in when you have a turnover event is that prior to that event occurring, you get what's called thermal stratification. And this happens in lakes and, you know, your backyard ponds and wastewater lagoons all the same. And mm-hmm. it's basically where you have different layers of the water column that have different temperatures. And so when you get into spring, you have what we people often refer to as turnover. And that's where those layers of the water column mix. And oftentimes when they start mixing they can release a lot of hydrogen sulfide that is produced by anaerobic digestion on mm-hmm. the bottom all at one time. And what this does is it causes massive odor issues. And it also causes some of that sludge to actually float to the surface. Mm-hmm. And it's what we call popping sludge. And if you can mix your lagoon, you can keep it destratified all the time so you don't get that layering condition. You can essentially eliminate that concern. As you were talking about previously, not all not all aeration is the same. Usually we hear about, oh, well, you need coarse bubble and now you need micro bubbles. When would you use either one and what does that mean? And let me throw one more question in there for you to answer all at the same time. How's that? <laughs> Sure. So it's it, you have three different main different types of aeration. You have surface aeration where you've got a aerator on the surface, and this is extremely common in lagoons, area lagoons. Typically, they have the donut-style surface aerator, and it just it's just throwing water in the air 
uh, is really what it is. And, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's an inexpensive aerator to buy, but it's a really inefficient aerator to run. So it's the least efficient type of aeration that's out there. You need more horsepower to get the oxygen in the water than you need for any other type of aeration. The other type you see is coarse bubble, and this is a diffused aeration system. So it sits on the bottom and you're pumping this air to the bottom and it releases bubbles, coarse bubbles, which, you know, say they're the size of your fist and they just rise rapidly through the water column. Now, these were these kinds of systems were more popular 20 years ago than they are today, in part because they're also not particularly efficient. Uh, mm-hmm. They are a little bit more efficient than surface aerators, but they're still relatively inefficient. Uh, but they're really good at mixing because those coarse bubbles, as they rise through the water column, create a lot of turbulence. And oftentimes you'd find these systems in place. They would have these draft tubes where the coarse bubble would be released at, at the bottom of a of a essentially a cylinder, a, a just a pipe, piece of pipe, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the as the coarse bubble rises through that pipe, it actually creates an airlift effect and starts to suck water from underneath from the bottom and push it towards the surface. So it's creating this active circulation. And then the final type, which is by far the most common you see now with, especially with retrofits, if you're looking to upgrade a lagoon, is to use fine bubble aeration. Fine bubble are just little bubbles. And as they rise through the water column, they have a less buoyancy. They don't rise as quickly because they're just smaller. Um, mm-hmm. And they have a lot of surface area. Um, when you have a cloud of fine bubbles, every little bubble has surface area uh, around its circumference. You get a cloud of these things, you get a lot of surface area. And so they're really efficient at transferring oxygen to water. They're about double the amount of efficiency as to every other aerator that you can get for lagoons. And so they tend to be used quite a bit. We actually have a system that our system actually combines both the fine bubble with the coarse bubble. Because in our mind, you need that mixing. That mixing so critical that yeah. you need to, to, to bring that coarse bubble mixer in and have it at the center of the unit. And then around our unit, we actually have fine bubbles. So we kind of get the efficiency of the fine bubble with the mixing of the coarse bubble uh, within one portable unit that's really easy to retrofit and to make. That's cool. I really like that idea. You know, when I hear the debate one versus the other, I'm like, putting them together makes so much more sense. <laughs> you know, get the benefits from both. Okay, so we've what kind of maintenance issues are we looking at for you know just aeration in general? Again, it, it comes down to the type of aeration you have. But the surface aerators, they are a motor on top of a, of a body of water. And they have gears and bearings and things that have to be regularly lubricated and maintained. Uh, they're often referred to as uh, a self-destructing pieces of equipment because that's, that's kind of what they are. And, and it's very common to see, I've been on you know, hundreds, if not thousands of lagoon sites over the last 14 years to roll up to a lagoon site and see, you know, some surface aerator, you know, hanging out on the side on the berm that just broke down that nobody could fix mm-hmm. uh, because they just tend to be a maintenance nightmare. When you get to diffused aeration, it gets a lot easier because instead of having, you know, 10 or 12 surface aerators all on the water, you end up with one or two blowers, which are on shore and maybe they're in a building. And uh-huh. so you just have fewer motors to maintain. They're easier to access. They're on, on the water. They're in, on shore. And so uh, that's really your, with a diffuse system, whether it's coarse or fine, that's your main maintenance point. You've got belts, uh, filters and air filters and, and oil changes, and they don't 
they're not really that much work. It's maybe uh, it's maybe half an hour every six months uh, on that. Now, when you get to diffuse diffusers, you have the core bubble, which has no maintenance to it, and then you have the fine bubble, which has a membrane diffuser sleeve, mm-hmm. and that membrane diffuser sleeve will break down over time. Uh, what happens is depending on the type of membrane sleeve that you have, sometimes they'll leach out plasticizers. They'll get just, just, uh, they'll be less stretchy over time. And eventually mm-hmm. you need to, you need to get out there and pull them up in a boat and either clean or switch out the sleeve. And we use a membrane that that's a silicone membrane and it, it doesn't have any plasticizers in it. So it just lasts a really long time. And so mm-hmm. our recommendation is like once every 10 years, you want to pull this guy up and clean off the membrane and or replace the membrane sleeve just to keep it going, keep it efficient. So how about wipes, hair, things like that? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, it's a concern, right? Um, as it is for mm-hmm. every wastewater uh, operator in, in the country, no matter what kind of thing you have. So some lagoons have screening. And, you know, if you see a screen on a lagoon, uh, typically it's just a, a manual bar screen. Um, and depending on the area and, and, and depending on how big the gaps are in that bar screen, stuff will collect on there and you get a rake and you rake it off and then rake it into a trash can. And, you know, you have to do that once a day and maybe it takes you 15 minutes or something like that. That's okay. It doesn't capture everything. The ideal is to have a mechanical bar screen and there are some simpler ones or, or a mechanical, um, preferred plate screen to do the job. But, you know, there's, uh, I'd say good 80% of lagoons have no screening at all. And so those wipes, you know, they come in and they, they start floating around and the aerators are there. And I don't care what kind of aerator you have. They are attracted to the aerator. You know, they'll clog up a surface <laughs> aerator. They'll clog up a course of uh-huh. diffuser. They'll clog up our unit. They'll clog up a, cor- a, a, a flammable diffuser as well. And it's, I mean, we've seen them pull them out of the water and they're like just, just like Coded. the Loch Ness monster, yeah. It's it's, yes. it's it's like a it's you see all those pictures on Facebook with like the pumps, you know that the pumps are just like the whole cord and everything is drenched, you know, in these rags, and that's that's what our that's what anybody's aerators kind of look like over time, you know. And so it's a it, it's frustrating. I mean, I think with diffused air, you know, the air tends to escape anyway, and uh-huh. so while it may not be the most efficient way to aerate when you've got rags on your unit. If you're still getting air in the water versus a surface aerator. It just gets clogged up and the motor stops and you lose all aeration. You lose all mixing and toast. You just have to get out there and pull it out and clean it out, clean it off, and put it back in again. Uh, which yeah. of course nobody wants to do. Yeah. Oh no. And it's usually like the younger guy on the, or the newer guy on the team that, that gets to do it or gal, I should say. What key technical considerations should, should operators and even engineers know or take when they are deciding on using aeration, like rules of thumb, tips, yeah. so forth. So the first thing when you're looking at putting an aeration is to think about the depth of your lagoon. To give you an example, if your lagoon is only five or six feet deep, uh, diffused aeration just tends to be uh, less attractive because you have less uh, water column and depth, uh, essentially, to for those bubbles to rise and transfer oxygen to water. So you just need more equipment. And so depth's pretty important. The second thing would be mixing and kind of what's your mixing requirement. Do you have normal municipal waste come in, in which case you can get away with partial mix conditions? Do you have industrial waste or septage coming in? 
where you need a higher level of mixing because you're going to see more solids and more organic loading. Those things are really important to kind of understand. And and then, you know, I mean, for me as a designer, I'd like to, obviously, we need to know what the dimensions of the cell are, the length, the width, the depth, the side slope, all those kinds of considerations come into play. And finally, mm-hmm. like, what are your effluent objectives? Where are you trying to get to? What kind of BODs do you need out of this thing? What kind of TSS? What kind of ammonia? If you need to hit an ammonia requirement, so on. And, you know, finding those as-builts can take a lot of time. <laughs> I've, I've helped, you know, look for as-builts before or had customers doing that. And and then realize, you know, they were 40 years old and they've made a couple changes since then. But yeah, I agree Getting those as builts at least to start with. I mean, usually the slope hasn't changed too much <laughs> when you're working with that, but right. But it is nice to see the whole paper rolled out and look at it. Well, I I really loved on your your Facebook page you had an algae season, duckweed season based cartoon that you did on like a kind of a Looney Tune ripoff from the duck season, right. rabbit season thing, and I love that. How does aeration impact your algae and duckweed problems? Algae, I mean, this is a, a a really interesting question, and we're doing a lot more research into it right now, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, in general, aeration is going to improve an algae situation. The more mixing you provide, the less algae you're going to grow. This isn't always uh, super feasible for a lot of lagoons that have algae issues because, you know, you have an uh, upfront capital cost and you have a long run operating costs yeah. associated with managing algae. And so, but it, it, in a lot of instances, it can make a lot of sense. The aeration is going to help to uh, basically uh, break down the fertilizer, the food source for the algae, which is the nutrients, which are sitting on the bottom mm-hmm. of the lagoon. And then it creates a lot of mixing, which algae doesn't particularly like to grow in, in highly mixed conditions um, and adds a lot of oxygen into the water as well. Um, so it can kind of crowd out the algae. Won't eliminate it. The only mm-hmm. thing to eliminate algae is a, is to uh, eliminate the sunlight by putting a cover <laughs> on the lagoon. But uh, yeah, it, it, or and or you know the other way to eliminate it temporarily is to uh, just increase the toxicity level in the water to the point where the algae just can't survive. So, but you uh, have to be cautious yeah, with that because that could kill your whole whole lagoon. I've seen it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and that's not a good. You know, the chemical approach is really uh, is not a sustainable approach uh, because it's not dealing with the root cause of the algae problem, uh, which Mm -hmm. is the actual nutrients themselves. They're the ones that are those nutrients are fertilizing the algae. And so you have to address that. You need to deal with your sludge. You have a lot of sludge. You have a lot of algae. And you need to aeration certainly helps with that. And you know, adding other additives that can help break down the sludge blanket or accelerate the breakdown of that sludge blanket from a mm-hmm. uh, microbial point of view, is also helpful in, in managing that. No, I, I agree. The problem is, though, is once duckweed is there, you know, it's taken over or algae, you, you have an algae mat, it's that removal that you know, people expect, you know, oh, I'll just put an aerator in and that'll just fix all of the problems. I'm like, no, you've got to actually clean it up first and, yeah. and put it yeah. that in. Yeah, it might, it, you know, I, I think, you know, your most effective results with an aerator, it's not a quick fix, but you put it mm-hmm. in today and you came back in the spring and you, know, you might have less algae or less duckweed growing next year than you had this year. But it ain't going to eliminate that stuff. It, it, that's not aerations. I mean, unless you really, really mix it. Uh, and even then, you'll still get some algae growth. So it, it's, it's more of a management strategy 
to use aeration mm-hmm. for those kinds of things. I think you have a wastewater lagoon. It doesn't need to look like a swimming pool. You know, it doesn't have to be perfectly clear. Uh, some algae is acceptable. In fact, uh, algae, if you read the EPA design guides on lagoons, they, they actually, uh, algae is a, an assumption in those design guides that you're going to get some mm-hmm. algae because algae actually adds oxygen to the water and it does a lot of really good things. So you don't always want to kill it entirely. You just need to manage it so it doesn't cause a BOD and TSS problem at your effluent. And, and the sad, the sad part for me is that a lot of these state regulatory agencies don't, they, 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 uh, they require what we call BOD five testing, right? Problem with yeah. BOD five testing is once you get algae into a BOD test bottle and you put it in your incubator, right? Which is pitch black and dark, right? Then that algae starts to respire. Right, consuming oxygen within that bottle, and it makes your BOD look higher than it really is because that BOD is not in the influent waste. It's not people's uh, poop or anything like that. That BOD is simply just algae that's respiring, and it's it's frustrating, I think, for a lot of operators, and understandably so, that the regulators haven't really caught on to that, and that they could require, for example, a soluble BOD which is essentially a filtered BOD. Now, that would be something that would filter out those algae particles or most of those algae particles and give you a real understanding as to how well the plant is operating. Because on the one hand, the EPA says you need algae in order to be a good lagoon system. And on the other hand, you have a regulation requirement to meet BOD, which is hard to do when you have algae. So yeah, it, it, it's a little frustrating that they can't, pick up on that because there's other ways to do testing that's not really that much harder more expensive that would give them more accurate pictures as to what lagoons can actually do do you recommend the cod at all cod is good yeah cod and that okay. would be another measure that would be effective yeah i love those little hot kits you know to just throw them in and super simple get a quick... not five days yeah it's yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> as, as long as you write control, the data down <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It, it, as a process control measure, if you really wanted to manage your process, COD is the best way to do it. Because if you can take over time, BOD and COD, and just do split sampling, you can kind of figure out what your BOD to COD ratio is. And then you can mm-hmm. start using CODs to see how you're doing today. Now, for most lagoons, that's more work. You don't really need to do that. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, yeah. If you had a, an industrial lagoon or, or a lagoon where you're treating a lot of industrial waste, then yes, that kind of information is really valuable because you can look at your COD and say, okay, well, I know I got a COD of 40 and I know my BOD is 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that more in the pulp and paper industry, automotive industry as well. So, yeah. Okay. So, what are some lessons learned that you've learned over time that you were maybe surprised about or just like, yeah, this is a good thing to always know? Every day is a. a an opportunity to learn. I'll give you a funny story. It's funny now, you know, one of those ones that looking back at, at later. <laughs> yeah. We had a system, a system in Michigan where it was a lagoon upgrade, putting in new aeration equipment. We, it was actually, it was a project that went out to bid. It was all engineered and designed and it was designed around our competitor's system and not, you know, sort of poo-pooing them or whatever, but we, we got in there, we, we, we saw the design. We're like, Hey, well, we can provide an alternative. 
and we the engineer allowed us to do it and we ended up winning the job and putting in the system you know they started up in the spring and you know everything's going great everything's fine install actually the install went extremely smoothly like it's probably the 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 smoothest install i think we've ever had oh. which was probably a bad sign uh you know they built the blower building put the new header in you know drop the aerators everybody's happy and then we get a you know we get a phone call in like February and you know, the operator's like, Oh, one of the aerators is moved on the bottom, sitting on the bottom, it's moved five feet this way. And we're like, wow, that's really interesting. Like we have probably over 10,000 units in the field at this point and they don't move. Uh-huh. Right? They're, not, they're, they're designed yeah. to be heavy enough not to move. So it's kind of an anomaly and we're sort of thinking to ourselves, well, what's going on? And so we got back out there in the spring, we pulled the unit up. We were like, well, we don't really know what's causing this, but let's, let's add some weight to this unit maybe it was underweighted from the factory we didn't we weighed it didn't seem like it was but we'll add some weight and call it a day you know okay. and um another year goes by gets back to the next letter same thing moved now we have uh, 1.5 times the typical weight of a unit right and it's uh still it still can't keep it down it's just it's like you put concrete we, shoes on it <laughs> Yeah, literally. And I can't keep it down. We're just like, we're blown away. We're like, what is going on here? It's making no sense whatsoever. So this time we're like, you know what? We got to get out there February. We got to send a diver down to see what's going on here. We got to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're, we take responsibility for our systems to an extreme as this story kind of illustrates. But so we get the diver. We have a, a guy that we know that we work with who dives and he dives wastewater looking. He's a completely crazy guy. Um, <laughs> <loving the> bits. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a different career field. That's not one you're like, hey mom, I want to be a wastewater diver. Oh, <laughs> uh, he he just loves it. He loves it. It just blows awesome. me away. And so uh, he's down there. He's walking down the lagoon. He's got this like air tube coming from his dive suit to shore, like an umbilical cord, uh-huh. and his dive helmet on. And he gets like halfway to the aerator, and he's like, he's like a com- there's a calm setup so you can talk to him from shore. And he's like, uh, yeah, I think I got a, I think I got a leak in my helmet. Yep. Yeah. There's a leak. So he had to turn around, come back. And by the time he got back, he had, like, he was, he was like <sighs> breathing in oh, like, oh. poop water. It was oh. absolutely disgusting. But to his credit, oh. he, he took off his helmet, spit a few times, put on a new helmet, went right back out there. So <laughs> Maybe we need this guy's the, name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get there and he's feeling around because you can't see anything in the bottom of mm-hmm. a wastewater lagoon. So you just do everything by feel. And so he's feeling around and he kind of he's feeling one of our diffuser tubes on our unit, which you know, he's thinking to himself, he's like, man, he's like, this this feels really big. You know, he's like, what what's going on here? He's like, how how you know he's over the comms. He's like, how big are those diffuser tubes typically? And you know, they're like two and a half inch ID. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, man, this feels really, really, really big. So he unscrews a couple of the tubes. He brings them back to shore. And, you know, sure enough, there's ice formation on this tube. And we're kind of thinking to ourselves, like, this this is doesn't make any sense, right? How does ice form Whoa. on an aerator sitting on the bottom of 10 feet deep lagoon? It's not freezing down at the bottom, right? You only have yeah. maybe a cup, a foot of ice at the surface, you know? and we. Had a, hit, a, a, a hunch. Um, the actual header coming from the blower was above ground, and so we were like, you know what? Let's let's put some temperature probes, and we'll put one probe mm-hmm. that's recording ambient temperature and one probe that's recording temperature in this pipe. And sure enough, 
after we did got a certain data set, we looked at it and they're pretty much the same. So the air, ambient air might be, you know, 20 degrees or 15 degrees in the middle of the night. It might be five or 10 in Northern Michigan. And the yeah. air in the pipe was exactly the same. So what happens when you put freezing cold air into water <laughs> is it creates ice cubes. And guess what ice cubes are? <laughs> They're buoyant. They float, you know? <laughs> so it was it, just crazy, you know, unintended engineering mistake. From now on, we, we always bury those headers. And I think that they're always better off underneath the, the surface and out of the elements, uh, no matter where you are, mm -hmm. um, for the most part. So yeah, that that's one thing. I mean, there's 101 things that we've learned over the years that, that make us who we are today. That's awesome. I, I would have never suspected that at first, but the moment you said the ice, I'm like, crap. <laughs> you know, that, that's an interesting story. That's awesome. I have one more question for you. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but the attitude of moving towards those package plants, why would you tell them, hey, fix your lagoon? Generally speaking, the equipment cost upgrade a lagoon to, let's say, meet an ammonia limit mm -hmm. is going to be less than putting in a, a package. So that's one thing. The long run operating cost, too, will be less. With lagoons, you typically need a lot less horsepower for aeration than you do in a package plant. And you don't need a, uh, a mechanical screen. It's nice, but you don't need one. You don't have to handle any solids. Lagoons, the way we handle solids in lagoons is we, we sell the solids in, in the sludge blanket. And yes, eventually we have to go ahead and dredge the lagoon out and remove those solids, but we only have to do that once every 20 years. At the very least is comparable in terms of solid management costs for a package plant except we only have to do it once every 20 years. It might be more efficient to handle all those solids at one time than it is to do it constantly. You know, even if you're just putting them in a dumpster and they're being hauled away, you still have to pay that cost. Yeah. So I think it's, it, you know, for, for a small community, the probably number one thing beyond the cost things, is just, just super forgiving and simple. Uh, it, you know, a lagoon, if you think about it, like can take so much abuse and still work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and every spring I get those calls where the people are like, oh, yeah, the lagoon stinks. You know, what can we do about this? I start asking questions around, well, you dredged it. When was the last time you dredged it? Is your aeration working? And they're like, uh, we haven't dredged it in 30 years. Uh, our aeration hasn't worked for the last 10. Yeah. Unbelievable how forgiving it is. They're complaining about odor and they've literally done nothing to operate their wastewater plant and maintain it in, you know, in the last 10 years. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. um, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And, and I say that's probably the number one thing. You know, it just, uh, Lagoon is one massive EQ basin, right? E-flow equalization basin. You can throw a lot of stuff at it and it will just suck it up and just do its job uh, without complaining mm -hmm. very much. Not to say that you don't have to do something at some point you do, but it's the yeah. no doubt the lowest and easiest uh, lowest maintenance and easiest thing out. Well, and I have to say, I don't think I've ever met the same lagoon twice. There are certain characteristics, but they've got the like you said, they're forgiving. But you know, these lagoons they they operate in all sorts of different environments. You like you say, you know, the frozen north. You've got the humidity. You've got the the desert area, and they work consistently across different environments. So I, I think that's another great thing that people forget is that you know their lagoons doing a lot. Even if it's just sitting there. Yeah, for them. yeah exactly. We're going to move on then to uh, Wanda's Water Tidbit. 
And if you'll hang with me through this, I don't know if you'd seen this article before, but uh, this is the part of the show where we dedicate it to my mom, uh, who sends me articles and stuff on wastewater all the time. And we wanted to celebrate, you know, the unusual and sometimes brilliant things in water. And one of our fantastic Probiotic Solutions customers, Bill, sent me an interesting article that he read on wastewater treatment in the new Atlas, which is an online magazine dedicated to new technology. So it's, it's kind of a fun read. And in this article, the University of Sydney is studying how to farm microalgae. So here we are talking about algae all the time, but they're doing it to produce biofuels. And what they found, though, in the creation of those biofuels was that they had a really heavily contaminated waste stream. And it had really high carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus. So they used electrochemical oxidation to treat that wastewater. And one of their electrodes is diamond-coated. So I thought maybe, you know, we're putting diamonds now in our wastewater. That just kind of the thought made me kind of laugh. But uh, by sending that electrical current, though, between the electrodes, they oxidized many of those contaminants into like a less harmful product. And they were able to remove 99% of the COD and then 96% of the, the coloration of the water. So it looks pretty clean. And they were able to change over the organic nitrogen into ammonia and nitrate, which in wastewater, we know how to deal with that all the time. But uh, I was just thinking, you know, diamonds are a girl's best friend and uh, wastewater's best friend too when we're using it in the water. So I, I don't know if you, you're going to recommend using electrochemical oxidation for any of your lagoons. But yeah, there's some new technology out there to try. Cool. So we wanted to thank you so much for joining us, Patrick, uh, for your time. And if you'd like to contact Triple Point Environmental, we have those links in the show notes as well. And we want to you know, thank you to all of our listeners and we'll talk with you soon. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.